Hello, and welcome to episode number five of Arts and Crass, the highbrow, lowbrow film podcast. I am Cullen. And I am Todd. And do you have a fun uh, movie quote to start us off with? No, nah, I, don't, I don't have it today for some reason. I really should, and I, and I just don't. <laughs> I wasn't laughing a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to it. Um, so this is the podcast where I, the uh, horror and exploitation junkie, um, introduce Todd, the artsy film school guy, to... Um, <laughs> Uh, to my kinds of films, and he introduces me to his kind of films. So it is a gorgeous day outside. And what are we doing? We're sitting, we're sitting inside. Recording a podcast. Talking to you people. We're suffering for our art or our our, our criticism. Suffering for something. Uh, for you people. We're suffering for you. Right. Okay. Uh, it is beautiful outside. So let's get done with this thing and enjoy it. Woohoo! Indeed. <laughs> and once again, uh, this time we have quite accidentally chosen uh, two films that dovetail pretty well together in kind of an interesting way. We're just speaking on how um, interestingly serendipitous our selections have been. And um, to make sure it's clear, we do not consult each other at all before picking these films. And somehow they've just really aligned nicely. Yeah, whatever was in the air, there was uh, female trouble in the air, (laughs) to put it in a really general way. Female, let's just leave it at female trouble. All right. Yeah. Um, So, like always, uh, well, actually, I should say what the films are first. Uh, This week, I gave Todd um, Lucky McKee's 2011 uh, The Woman. And I gave Colin... um, Marina Devon's 2002 In My Skin. Introduce a little anarchy. Upset the established order and everything becomes chaos. Okay, so uh, I always flip it and Todd always calls it in the air and he almost always loses. So let's see if we can keep the streak alive. (laughs) Are you ready? Yep. Tails! And Tails it is. Uh, <laughs> All right. So that means we're starting with In uh, My Skin. In My Skin from 2002. Uh, written by, directed by, and starring um, Marina Devon. And you want to give us a breakdown of this thing? I will. So this film is about a woman named Esther. She uh, lives in Paris. She is in her... 30s, I guess. It's never said explicitly, but it's pretty obvious. She's a, a young professional. She works for a public relations firm um, doing sort of, at the start, she's doing pretty, what seems to be pretty basic white-collar type work. She has a boyfriend named Vincent who is a uh, business journalist. Also, also kind of a white-collar, like a general white-collar dude. Um, so at the start of the film, uh, Esther's work friend, whose name is Sandrine, uh, gets her into this very fancy work party at the big boss's house. Uh, Esther is going to go and try to network and schmooze and rub elbows and maybe try to finagle a promotion. The big boss lives in a really fancy mansion on a large estate 
Uh, and on this estate, there's still some things being built. There's some construction work going on. Um, so at the party, Esther, it's at night. Esther kind of wanders away from the party to go stroll around the grounds of this estate. And she uh, comes upon a place where there's some construction being done. There's like, you know, uneven ground and tools and metal strewn around. And she, uh, she trips over something, stumbles and falls down, uh, gets up, thinks nothing of it until she goes back into the party and sees that she, there's blood dripping from her leg. Uh, she goes in the bathroom and, and sees that she has actually cut herself quite badly in this fall on the lower leg, uh, calf, uh, shin region. Uh, she leaves the party. She, the next day, or, 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 you know, it is presumed to be the next day, she goes to the doctor, and the doctor looks at it and says, you cut the shit out of yourself. <laughs> uh, this looks horrible. Why didn't you come sooner? And she says, oh, uh, I didn't feel it. When I, f- when I fell down, I didn't feel it. I only noticed it after I saw the blood. And he says, well, that's weird. Um... He says, you know, there might be some neurological stuff happening. Does a test to make sure she actually has feeling in her leg, and she does. And he says, well, I guess it was just adrenaline, you know, made you not notice you would cut yourself. But still, that's kind of weird. But he dresses the wound, and uh, he cleans it, dresses it, and sends her about her way. Um, but she starts to develop this kind of strange interest in it. I wouldn't say it's to the level of fascination yet, but she's just kind of interested in it. Like she won't really let it heal. Right. Cause she's sort of picking at it, uh, disturbing it like you do. Um, she goes to work the next day or shortly thereafter. Uh, and she's at her desk and she can't concentrate. So, she goes into the into the supply room at work and she really starts picking at her wound she's uh she's sort of violently kind of scratching at it opens it back up it starts bleeding again uh first with her fingers and then she takes a piece of metal some kind of sharp piece of metal and starts picking at it with that and then she she takes that piece of metal and starts cutting herself on her on her thigh, which is heretofore unwounded, making fresh cuts on her thigh. Um, and then she goes and sees her her friend Sandrine again, and now she's acting really strange, almost like she's high. You know, fast uh, speech, inappropriate laughter, and she says, "Hey, how's it going? Uh, I, I just went back in the storeroom and cut myself. Ha ha ha!" And Sandrine is, of course as a good friend would be kind of a little bit taken aback by this. And she says, why don't you come and stay with me tonight? Uh, they have kind of a fun girls night, whatever. Uh, Esther gets in the shower and this is when we, the audience and Sandrine actually see the extent of what she has done to her thigh. And she has really cut herself very badly. She is mutilated, essentially mutilated her upper, upper thigh. Um, Sandrine is very, very upset by this, very nervous. The boyfriend finds out he, he doesn't know what to do. Um, and then in the midst of all this, uh, Esther gets that promotion that she's been trying to get, uh, new job. She's a project manager now. 
a lot more money, a lot more responsibility. And she's happy. And she and her boyfriend start talking about moving in together or um, buying a condo together. Uh, and everything's all right for a while. She doesn't cut herself. They ask her about it, and she says, oh, it was just a thing I did once. I, I don't know why I did it. I haven't done it again. I'm not going to do it again. Uh, and everything seems fine. The wounds start to heal until uh, her boss asks her to go to dinner with some clients, and these are very rich uh, clients that have a luxury jewelry company and they're trying to revamp their entire public relations yep. campaign and they're spending a whole lot of money. So we're at, they're at this nice restaurant and Esther starts to, and there had been hints of this earlier of this, uh, disassociation that is happening with her that had happened with the numbness in her leg before. Now it's coming back and it is in her arm. She can't feel her arm and sitting at this, uh, at this table, listening to these uh, business people talk about these big money deals and how they travel all over Europe. She starts to imagine that her arm is not a part of her body. It's, it's, it's cut off and is like basically a mannequin arm. Uh, at the forearm or at the elbow and under the table, she takes the steak knife and just starts cutting on herself and she is kind of stabbing herself. And then she goes, she excuses herself to go to the bathroom and goes into the, into the back um, of the restaurant. And she really goes to town. Uh, and then later that night she rents a hotel room and, I'm not going to describe anything that happens from here on because not because I don't want to spoil it, but because it's, you kind of have to see it. <laughs> it's really hard to describe. Suffice wow. to say that she, it, it does not get better. Uh, her, her self harm and self mutilation gets worse from there. Um, that's the film and probably a little too long and a little too detailed synopsis, but I wanted to get some things out there cause they're important. I'm going to talk about them later. I actually love it that you gave that detail of a synopsis. I think that actually speaks a lot um, to open us up with. Um, as you're giving it, I realized um, how much more nuanced your um, synopsis was this week. And um, the only thing I can draw from that is that the uh, narrative in this film is extremely thin, very intentionally, and serves only as a context for the visceral experience. And um, and so, honestly, you maybe could have even had the visceral experience without the context, but I think the narrative context gives it. A lot more oomph, a lot more investment on the viewer's behalf, and um, and honestly, just simply more disturbance um, on certain scenes. As I was researching it, I was trying to remind myself what had stricken me so much about this film, like I, why I had had that intense of a reaction to it. And as Colin was giving his synopsis, it came back across me. It was the visceral experience of it. And as he was giving his synopsis, I started getting chills. And, um, and some of the details he's hitting on, the imagery, as if it were yesterday, started flowing back into my head. Um, and, 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 yeah, even, like I said, just hearing it um, laid out in a synopsis and in Cullen's words, like, those images were right back in my head, and that visceral experience was right back in my body. So there's a movement in uh, contemporary French cinema starting in the early 2000s or so, and since has been revisited, um, adopted actually across genre lines into the genre, into the horror genre, um, shock genre, whatever you may want, may want to call it. But 
Um, it was a handful of filmmakers, Marina Devon, um, Gaspar Noe, and quite a few others, actually, um, that basically were making films that much of the critical reception um, pointed a finger and almost shrugged it off as shock cinema um, without much substance other than the value of shock. Um, I, I think that's a, a very, very thin analysis of, of all of these films, but particularly Marina Devon's film. She's one of the directors that was put into that category by critics who adamantly said, no, my film was not shock cinema, no, I had no intent of that even being the focal of my film, that this was a psychological exploration as well as more than that, an exploration of the human body itself as a separate entity. Um, our fascination with the human body, our obsession with the human body, the seemingly um, divisible um, aspect of mind versus body. Um, and so her intent, she claims fully, was in no way to uh, make a shock cinema piece. Placing in, into a more um, formalist, stylized um, art piece that, once again, I think it was just exquisite filmmaking um, as far as her um, chosen visuals and, and stylization. Um, but yeah, putting um, this sort of um, subject matter into that framework, and then on top of it having kind of a realist backdrop to the actual narrative and the actual um, action of the story, um, it, it's, it's harder to brush it off. It's harder to divide yourself from the filmmaking and reality, and um, which I think, um, once again, added to the intensity of these things as if as opposed to if they had been framed in a horror film context, they would have been, I think, easier to digest and easier to brush off to some degree. Um, in this film, it was very hard to get away from them. And um, some of the more disturbing images and more disturbing scenes, the scene that um, Colin stopped on, um, unbelievably intense, um, I think pretty masterfully um, shot scene. Um, You're talking about in the restaurant or in um, the hotel in, room? In the hotel room. Um, it, it could have been a short experimental film on its own, basically. Mm -hmm. It yeah. really didn't need the context of the rest of the feature length. Um, it, it could have easily held its own just as a, um, yeah, just as a purely experimental film. I struggle with where to start uh, talking about this film from a critical perspective. It's a little over halfway through the film, that scene in the hotel room. I picked that as where to stop in my synopsis because it really is a turning point. And it's kind of the point in the film when the narrative sort of breaks down. The story after that does not seem all that important. Um, I do think, I take a little bit of an issue with what you said earlier, which is that the narrative is not important, it really not important at all in this film, or that it's only a, a frame to hang these visceral um, moments on, because I do think that it's important, uh, but we can get to that in a minute. Um, like I said, it's really hard to know where to start. Um, I guess, okay, I have a question. Was this shot on video? Nope. 35 millimeter. It felt artificial. Right. Something shot on film stock that does this much overlaying, this much slowing down, this much manipulation of image, this much uh, blowout um, with lighting. With those kinds of manipulations not being projected on film, you're not going to get the full effect of that. And it's going to come across a little more shallow. And I do think it was very deliberate. I absolutely think it was an, it was a, it was an artistic choice on uh, Marina Devon's part to shoot it that way. Absolutely. Because it's not, it's not the sort of, you expect to see this kind of story done in a more, um, in a more gritty 
absolute like cinema verite kind of fashion. Very much. That okay. So this is a good point. This is a good place to start talking, especially since we're already talking about style. Mm-hmm. Um, that absolutely, it's very crisp, clean um, production value. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, kind of exquisitely um, clean production value. But then. Once again, numerous manipulations of image for formalist experimental filmmaking, um, a lot of techniques, experimental techniques utilized. Um, and so that blended into the clean. Colin's absolutely right that you would expect more of a virte, more of a grindy. Um, certainly, um, certainly more grain would be typical for a film like this. And she went very, very clean, very clean mm-hmm. and um, very intentionally. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel like that approach created a tension, um, a, a distance between the audience and her, which um, a sense of voyeurism and discomfort in observing her. So mm-hmm. I, I had spoken on the visceral experience, but with them drawing you into her visceral experience, you still always feel like you're on the outside to some degree. Yes. And, and that really is a very, sorry to cut you off, oh, no, please. but that's a, that's a really, I think it's a good way into talking about the themes of this film. Yes. Because... Um, and I want to say right off the bat that this is a difficult film for me to talk about thematically. And I think that we, me and Todd as men have to tread very carefully here when discussing the themes in this. Um, thank you for throwing that out actually. And I also think that, um, I can't speak for Todd, uh, nor would I insist that he speak for himself on this matter, but I have never struggled with self-harm it's not part of my story i think that anyone who has uh had a had a problem with self-harm behaviors i I would say massive massive trigger warning Mm -hmm. when when contemplating watching this film um thank you for that too colin from the psychological, you know, from the real world psychological perspective, it is, it is something that I only have an intellectual understanding of and not, I'm kind of like the boyfriend in this film. <laughs> like I, I can only see it happening from the outside. I don't know. I can't speak to the psychological underpinnings of what drives no, a person to l- those behaviors. Let me ask you this. Um, did that distance, do you feel like that enhanced the viewing experience or interrupted it? I felt like it changed it i mean i'm i'm not going to watch this film with the same eyes as someone who actually has had those problems i can say what i do relate to in this film is the experience of people dismissing your struggles not understanding your struggles because there are these scenes with the boyfriend where and god bless him all he wants is the best for her but he is extremely disturbed by by what she's doing and he does not respond with compassion and i think we can all whatever challenges we've dealt with we can all relate to having people um not responding with compassion but instead with a ho oh, what the fuck is wrong with you <laughs> and, and that's a really you know i think that's a universal experience so almost intensifying her loneliness and her isolation in it um in some way um with that kind of reaction um yeah. and at the same time not making once like colin said not making him a bad man and by any means he's actually seems in the film to be portrayed as a very loyal very honest a mate um, yeah. that, that really um, has her best interests in his mind. He seems yeah. like a decent enough guy. He just yeah. doesn't get he, it. He doesn't get it, and <laughs> and he really doesn't get it. Yeah, and um, and and really doesn't even make an attempt to. But with that being said, 
I totally understand where he's coming from as well. You know, I, I don't expect more empathy than that from him necessarily. Yeah. However, it's 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 to some degree in the real world as well as in the film, it's somewhat a, a disastrous um, reaction um, for somebody dealing with someone like that. Um, or yeah. as far as intensifying the isolation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that isolation. I mean, the reason that I think the narrative is important in this film is because it starts from the very beginning with what she does for a living. Mm-hmm. You know, she works in public relations it's all about the face we put out to the world and how we present ourselves to the world and if everything looks okay on the outside then whatever whatever in the hell can be going on under the surface if everything's everything looks okay on the outside then you know then we're fine we can talk about how um i almost called her marina how esther has this twin sort of fascination with and also repulsion about her body and all of this is portrayed through very you know she's quite a good actress extremely subtle acting moments that happen just looks that she gives um the way she reacts to things this kind of mixture of pain and exhilaration that you see in her face exhilaration bordering on sexual uh, arousal when she's engaging in this self-harm, these self-harm behaviors. Definitely it's a, a really a physically rooted euphoria yeah. of some sort. Yeah. yeah. That, and she expresses that. It's yeah. a really complicated mix of uh, emotions and reactions that she gives through her acting. And of course it's pretty wordless, you know, when in these sequences they're, they're silent cause she's doing it by herself. She doesn't have anybody to talk to. So it's all done with her face. Um, this movement in French cinema was defined by the exploration of physicality. That, that is the defining element. Now, obviously it goes much further than that. And these films aren't necessarily justifiably even grouped together. This is what critics do. They they group Mm. things together that aren't necessarily grouped together. They create movements. Right. So these filmmakers did not create this movement. Critics clump them together. Uh Um, I dare say that uh, um, Gaspar Noé and and, uh, Devon would sit around and have brilliant intellectual conversations about filmmaking, but would never put their films in the same category. Right. Um, Probably not embarrassed by having them in the same category either. I would think they probably respect each other a lot, but I don't know. She could just as well think that Gaspar Noe is an asshole because a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also a pretty extraordinary filmmaker. Um, but so there's that element, and then um, Maria Devine is. I loved it that Colin touched on her performance. Um, she was actually better known for her acting before this film than she was for um, for her directing. She had only directed short films. This was her first feature length, and it's very interesting to me that she really is such an academic filmmaker, um, such an intellectual filmmaker. Um, and, and once again, unapologetically, like she is what she is. Um, she doesn't say that she has anything else or trying to do anything else. Um, but, um, that, that seeing that crossover with her also being, um, such an invested, um, actor or actress, um, I think is really interesting as well. Um, that she gives that same, that same academic intellectual kind of, I don't know, structural breakdown. It seems like she does the same thing with her characters, that she probably does a lot of research, a lot of exploration of those themes. Um, Maybe takes the same approach to acting as she does to filmmaking. She actually made the comment um, with this film that the one thing that she was absolutely not willing to negotiate on was that if she did not play the lead role, she wasn't going to make the film, that she wrote it with only herself in mind. You can call that whatever you want to, um, but 
it seemed to be a very honest comment. I don't think there was any sort of pretension behind it as much as she absolutely separated herself from herself as a performer and was like, I am the person to play this part and no one else. And um, so that she was pretty adamant about that. And I would tend to agree. I don't think anybody else could have played that role and, yeah. um, and, and done what she did with it or even understood it enough to do what she did with it. And some of the ambiguities that, that Colin expressed as well as some of the subtle um, expressions in her performance. It's interesting because I guess morally or ethically when you make it, it does seem to be very much about, society and it has this layer of I don't like the phrase social commentary but I'm going to use it anyway it has a layer of that overlain with um, a very real psychological issue um, you know a disease that a lot of people struggle with so ethically using using something that is a very real struggle with people to make a point about society. I don't really know where that's interesting. That might be really interesting. It it might be part of the reason why this film got derided as mere shock because, you know, a lot of, you know, plenty of filmmakers have made films about modern white collar, urban alienation without using the vehicle of, of self harm, which is a really serious real thing that real people struggle with. But it wouldn't have had it wouldn't have had the same like todd said visceral impact and you can draw a direct line from what she does for a living um into the things that really seem to trigger her which are um fears of inadequacy fears of um you know, economic uh, fears, fears about uh, not getting the job. Everybody's better at this than I am. They're making more money than I am. Being sort of put on blast about uh, about about her status and um, and 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 what she does to herself, um, mutilating herself in in places on her body that stay out of sight the legs lower and upper and also the arm. And that's why it's a big turning point towards the end of the film where she finally cuts her face Mm -hmm. because now there's no hiding it. What she puts out to the world is very obvious that she has done this to herself. And that's pretty much where the film ends. So we go on this journey from repression to the return of the repressed. uh, And then the film's over. And very interesting. Like there's a lot of things I want to touch on there. Um, that once again, we probably have no right to talk about being um, two hairy grunt men <laughs> sitting across from each other. Um, but the feminine experience, I, I mm-hmm. think. Um, God, I wish there was somebody else here to discuss this, um, oh. or that we could bring in to discuss this. Um, it has to be at least noted. Um, the um, unique, what seems to me to be the unique, unique feminine experience with body image versus a unique male experience with body image. This film probably touches on both. I think there are probably things about it that perhaps I can't speak on fully in depth just from a male perspective, but then I also very much think thematically that she touched on a universal that stretches across male-female, just humanity. The fact that, like we were talking about earlier, that it looks like 
it has the look or the sheen of a drama, very sterile, modern, mm-hmm. nice sort of domestic drama is that's what it's putting out into the world. Right. You know, that's the public face of the film. Right. Just like the public face of the character <laughs> is a, nice. uh, a professional, capable, competent woman, you know, uh, and, uh, and underneath there's all these struggles going on and she works in PR. I love it that you're bringing out the multi-tiered parallels and strengthening the argument that the narrative very much furthers the, um, visceral experience. Um, but yes, her, her being, um, um, her character being framed in the PR world, very blatant parallel to the experience. Um, but then the film itself, um, even, even paralleling, um, the experience of the character, um, Mm -hmm. as far as there being a face, here's the face of the film versus what the film actually is. Um, I love that you drew that parallel or that you drew that connect. So last time when Todd told me that he was assigning me this film, I said, Oh, well, that's a horror film. <laughs> like you've given me a horror film to watch and it's one that's been on my list. It was on my my Netflix DVD queue cuz I'm old school. And did I realize it was a <laughs> horror film? For a long time and I I it, I had read about it and it was my understanding that it was a horror film and Todd of course, you know, told me before we started recording that he had he, in doing his research, he had come to find out that in recent years this film has gotten a reputation as being horror and for I can understand why and and like Todd was touching on earlier, I sort of I come into this through the back door. Mm-hmm. Um the horror films that it permeated years later, which is funny because the earliest films that created this kind of reappropriate elements of horror films. And then those got reappropriated back into the horror genre in a much more intense, much more violent, visceral body conscious way. When I say this film in 07, 08 um, and haven't really revisited it since, it was 100% within the context of art cinema, right. shock cinema, exploration of physicality. Never once do I yeah. think, even in our film class, was the notion of horror as a genre ever brought up. And, you know, probably two, three weeks of discussing these filmmakers, and I don't think anybody ever once introduced the notion of horror yeah. in my film class. The mode of production is certainly, like, it's very hard to draw very many elements out of the mode of production of this film and mm-hmm. say that that's, um, that that's aligned with typical horror mode of production. Yeah. Um, however, there are other aspects of the film, subject matter such, that I, I can see how it's drawn in, but because there's so few similarities in the mode of production that, that it's hard for me to, to innately throw it into the horror genre. I would ultimately say this is more art film than horror film. I would very much say the and same. the reason why is the last... 30 or 40 minutes of the film. Mm -hmm. Like I talked about earlier, when the narrative sort of breaks down, now Esther is not only cutting on herself, but she's cutting off pieces of herself. Um, It's a pretty adamant um, and purposeful um, narrative disintegration. Yes. Or deconstruction. Yes. In the start, her body is whole and un, un... unwounded and un, un, unblemished and fine. Um, she gets a cut. That's when the fracks, when the, the fractures and the cracks in her body and her personal life, her professional life and the narrative all start to appear. And then 
when she starts not only not only wounding herself but actually cutting pieces off of her body that's when the narrative starts to lose pieces we and she's missing days of work nice line that's when the narrative starts to lose pieces <laughs> well yeah it's all these no because no, i mean really compliments that was a great line because <laughs> it's the three esters the three tiers of her her body's losing pieces she's missing days of work and the narrative starts to lose pieces there's things that we don't see um and she's uh engaging in auto cannibalism she's self uh, consuming herself, eating some of these pieces she's cutting off. She's drinking her own blood um, at the same time as her professional life starts starts to kind of turn in on itself as well. And then it um, by the end of the film, there's a lengthy sequence where it cuts itself. It's not just Esther cutting herself, but it's the film cutting itself in half. And there's this long split screen sequence, which makes no sense to me. I don't know what is going on. It's just basically a really complex montage. Yeah, yeah. but it makes it it's really it. That is when the film lost me. <laughs> and then at the end, the film completes the act of eating its tail when we have this sort of complex shot where we pan down at a canted angle and then uh, move away from Esther lying on the bed, staring into the camera. That shot's repeated three times and then cut to black. I'd actually forgotten about the repetition of the three shots. Yeah, that's I remember it now. Um, interesting that, that the montage, and you're saying that's the point that it lost you. I think that that almost became, um, I don't know, the the... the the pinnacle of it all coming together for me, actually, yeah. um, to some degree. Um, at that point, I remember being so fully invested um, in her that, um, once again, the, the narrative was secondary to me at that point, that the narrative mm. already served its function to me at that point. Um, and it had drawn me where it was supposed to bring me. And at that point, it dropped me off with her, and, um, and, and I stayed there with her. Because you are versed in the language of art cinema, mm-hmm. um, non-narrative cinema you've narrative watched a lot more of is it. very comfortable to narrative, me yeah, yeah you've watched a lot yeah. more of it than i have i felt very alienated and confused you felt, and that's part of the experience as well is that like i said i was invested in her enough that i could be dropped off and it, so it's interesting to ask is it yeah the language of art cinema barrier that that you couldn't be dropped off there or was it simply that you weren't invested enough or as invested in her as i was at that point which is simply the film having more of a um, successful impact on one person versus another and different viewing experiences. I think it was probably the former because I'm not as versed in the language, uh, in the film language. And I would say that if had the, and that's why I say it's really, I, I, I put it firmly in th- on the side of art, art rather than, than crass, I guess yeah. <laughs> it's definitely more, way like more on your there. side than my side, because I think so too. if the first, if the last 40 minutes had been more like the first 50 minutes, it would be a horror film. Interesting. I think I would call it that. I, th- I think, um, even with that being done, I, I, I agree with Colin that it, that I would be much more open to the idea of discussing it as a horror film, mm-hmm. um, off of the first half of the film. It reminded me a lot of the transgressive short, horror films of um, filmmakers like Douglas Buck and uh, Nacho Cerda. Uh, his his full-length work is much different. Uh, but, but definitely the shorts that both of those filmmakers did have this transgressive 
um, very, very physical body conscious horror tone that, that feels a lot like this film. When I watched this film, just on a very direct level, um, the mutilation scenes, um, were unbelievably difficult for me to view. Um, Uh Like, unbelievably difficult. Like, some of the more disturbing imagery I've seen in film, I've seen things that were much more extreme than this as far as what I'm actually seeing. There was something about this film that, even with all the art cinema experimental kind of stylized formalist approach, that there was something so real about the experience um, and and the actual physical action of what she was doing. That was very Vierte. And, um, And so... There was there was no open door to seeing the filmmaking behind it at that point. I feel like um, yes, I, I I'm so glad you brought this up because I was just about to bring this okay, up. Good. Um, yeah, the <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna put back on my horror fan hat here. I'm really interested in hearing from a horror fan if this, yeah. how disturbing this was to you. Yeah, yeah. The special effects makeup in this was fucking amazing. <laughs> There was no, I realized halfway through the movie, like, I don't know how she created that. I hope that she didn't actually do that to herself because it really looks like she did. I mean, it is, it is really, there is no, like you say, there is no, oh, I can see the edge of the makeup where that was applied. (laughs) And there is no, oh, the blood is a little too red. It looks like that, you know, tomato sauce shit they used to throw around in 70s zombie movies. Almost intentional relief in some of the horror films sometimes. Uh Yeah, yeah. But none of it exists. It it is so, so good. And there's early in the film, there's a close-up when she's taking off the dressing. She's uh, taking off the bandages that the the doctor uh, at first had put on. And there's a close-up sort of panning down and you see how it started to scab over a little bit. You see the places where the wound is still fresh and sort of glistening. Once again, I'm getting you chills see as you talk. the places where there's bruising around the edges of it and it's kind of purpley and you see flecks of blood. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and yeah, it's like, it's almost one of those films where you think, did she really? Did, so like let's how, and, how could this have been achieved without actually harming herself? Especially like I, like I made reference to earlier at the very end when she cuts her face and there are those, those bruises and cuts around her eye um, looks totally, totally real. I bought it. And there was never that sense. I was never, uh, the filmmaker never gave me the opportunity to step away from it and remind myself that it was all fake. And, and let's talk about her pacing there too. She only gives you enough time to breathe, not to comfort, just to breathe yourself down enough to digest the next disturbing image, mm-hmm. and, yeah, um, which yeah. was pretty intense. Her pacing was pretty brilliant in that way. Um, with everything that Colin just said, that um, let's go ahead and throw out that. Um, that warning to everyone that um, you just heard it from a uh, a horror hound and from <laughs> an art film um, boy who watches as edgy and disturbing imagery as possible very often. And so you heard it from both sides of disturbing imagery that um, this this had a very intense impact on both of us. This will make you cringe. It, it will. Um, I it's very like rarely last... have looked away from a screen, and mm-hmm. I think during this film um, – um, and then went on to screen it numerous times and I don't think ever quit looking away at certain moments. But, um, when I first screened it, I looked away probably five, six times in sitting in a dark room with a bunch of film students who have watched 
numerous things that are challenging imagery-wise, and hearing it these moments five, six times during this film. I think it's the only time during a screening in film school I can remember this happening. The entire room in sequence going, (gasps) 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 like, and you just heard it, like, 30 people deep, all together, just, like, crawling into themselves, being like, oh, I can't watch i have to watch yeah, yeah it's 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 tough i wouldn't say my reaction to this was that bad, <laughs> but um i definitely i definitely cringed and yeah. i don't always cringe and uh, uh yeah like we talked about with cannibal holocaust last time no matter how hardened you are this this will get i almost said the most horrible horrible wordplay right there i'm not even gonna say it <laughs> Uh, that's why we leave it up to the imagination. We trust our audience to fill in the gaps like good filmmakers, that's right. <laughs> like good podcasters. That's right. The podcast happens in between the cuts. Yay! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> so cute. Uh, I wonder who has ever said that. <laughs> so are you about ready to wrap this up or is there? Let's, let's get the final word on this. Yeah. So to, uh, to sum it all up, um, it's an art film with elements of transgressive horror. It definitely has a feminist uh, point of view, uh, both in terms of body image and the struggles of a woman in the professional world. But what I think is interesting is that it doesn't make a point with a hammer. It, it does allow you to interpret and, and gives you some room to draw your own conclusions about exactly what point it is trying to make. It doesn't beat you over the head with it, unlike maybe another film we might talk about in a few minutes. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's uh, in you know thematically it's pretty. It, ha- it has some stuff that's really upfront and some other stuff that's really subtle. Um, yeah, well said. I struggle with the ending of this film. I didn't understand it. It kind of made me feel stupid. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I watch a film like this and I think, well, I thought I knew what it was all about for a while, but I guess I'm not smart enough. With that being said, um, Colin likes to fool you a lot. Um, um, the reality being, uh, he's, he's can hang with any intellectual I know, and he is an intellectual. He just puts on this other little, but I, I really (laughs) didn't, uh, maybe I'm intellectual enough to know how non-intellectual I really am. <laughs> Perhaps. Because I didn't um, understand the ending at all. I would once again <laughs> dare say that, that it was a matter of language and, and familiarity with language, of the, a cinema lang- cinematic language. Yeah. I could tell what she was going for. I had enough understanding. But I think, yeah, because of that language barrier, um, it didn't work on me like obviously works on Todd and a lot of other people who watch it who are more familiar with that mode of filmmaking. That being said, uh, very much a highbrow. Ah, yes! <laughs> very much raising the brow for this film, for everything else in it. My, 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 brow, my brow achieved its peak of height uh, maybe about 55 minutes into the film and then gradually drooped a little bit towards the end but it was never fully low even at the, even at the very end it it was never a low brow i uh, like i love these critiques when i really don't know what your response is going to be coming <laughs> into the final high brow low brow like uh-huh. i almost felt a low brow coming there and i knew it was going to be a back and forth yeah you know yeah. but i could have seen you going the other way yay good 
if the entire, I, I will say this, if the entire film had felt like that last 20 minutes, it probably would have been a low brow. Right. But again, th- that's personal. And actually strengthened Colin's point about the narrative being relevant. Thinking back on it, the film would not have been successful if the whole thing had been like the last 20 minutes or it would have needed to be a 20 minute film. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's true. Um, if it were a 20 minute uh, short, I probably could have, probably could have rolled with it. Yeah. Yep. There you go. That's in Bravo. my skin. High brow. In my skin by Marina Devon. Check it out if you dare. Comment vous avez fait ça? Je suis tombé sur des éléments métalliques dans un chantier en outils, je pense. Ça ne vient pas d'être fait, ça, ça au moins 3 ou 4 heures. Pourquoi vous avez traîné comme ça? Qu'est-ce qu'il y a? T'as la moitié de la jambe arrachée, tu t'en rends pas compte, elle lâche tes fleurs, tu te retournes, tu te grattes alors. On a regardé partout dans la chambre, on a trouvé un truc bizarre, il y avait du sang sur le sol, dans la salle de bain. On avait peur de tomber sur un cadavre. Après, j'ai été mentaillé dans le débarras après les archives. Comment tu t'es entaillé? J'ai compris, mais qu'est-ce que tu faisais avec ce truc en fer Je m'en Alright, next, on to the next film. So the film given to me was uh, The Woman by Lucky McKee, um, probably the coolest filmmaker name on earth. Um, if only we could all be so lucky to have a name that catchy. <laughs> um, Alright, so the, the basic synopsis, um, the framework. Um, so a kind of small-town country lawyer that lives in a rural atmosphere and practices law in a small town, has a family of three children and a wife that from the very onset, um, you feel some sense of tension, male dominance, but it's never specifically specified, and nor do you specifically see him angry or abusive in the first half of the film. Um, it goes out hunting, um, and... On his hunting trip, Solo um, is, uh, through his rifle scope, um, spots a human in nature as opposed to an animal. But the human he spots is living very much like an animal. Uh, The human he spots actually pretty much is an animal. Um, Well, we all are. But um, So he, of course, is intrigued. Um, Goes back home. He has a shed in the back um, that he continues... goes forward to ask his family to clear out. The family pretty much does whatever he asks, um, but you're not quite sure why. Um, so he asks them to clear out this, um, this space. And, um, and immediately, um, as, as a viewer, you know exactly why the space is being cleared out. He spots the woman in the woods, comes back home from his hunting trip, um, and you're not even sure if he has the woman with him at this point or not, but he doesn't. And um, gets the space cleared and then goes back out next day or next couple of days. Um, and... and throws a net over her and captures her. And, um, and so this is basically a wild beast human, basically, in, in nature. And she seems to be a flesh eater. Um, um, not necessarily specified, um, but it seems as if she's open to eating any and all flesh. Um, and he captures her and brings her home and ties her up in the shed um, fully sprawled, almost Jesus-style, um, arms up and, and legs pulled, and, and uh, I believe there's a pulley system he has pulling uh, that he's rigged up, um, very kind of uh, backwoods country-esque, um, to keep her um, restrained. And um, so you basically have a grunting, um, um, growling, um, un, uh, yeah, um, uncivilized human being um, trapped um, or, or tied up in his shed. Um, that he decides, um, you know, 
the great rationalization of his moral cause um, is to civilize her. Of course, this is how he describes it to his family, that I'm going to civilize this woman. Um, now, you have a um, very passive wife looking on. You have um, children that seem to feel um, very... Um, very bound up and, and, and a lot of tension. Um, there seems to be an element of fear from, from everybody's reaction to the father, even though you haven't seen why they fear him yet. So he tells his family that he's going to civilize this girl and that um, he's going to teach her to speak, clean her up, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, but obviously, once again, kind of a rationalization, um, completely a rationalization. And, and at this point, your mind's just going crazy with what his actual intent really is. Um, the story progresses. She remains um, chained up in... in in his uh, shed. Um, there are um, a lot of family elements that go on. You start catching on to what the chemistry of the family is. Um, that's developed a lot more thoroughly. And the rest of it is basically uh, tracking the plight of, of him keeping this woman restrained, um, sort of attempting to civilize her or, or to, to, to um, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, and then it basically follows that pattern um, throughout and then really, um, brings an element of peril into the chemistry with the family and, and, and the uh, homestead. And, um, and I'm actually going to stop there because the rest of it is just um, very um, interesting narrative beats that we should actually talk about. So, yeah. Um, does that pretty much cover it? Yeah, good job. There's a lot of things here that I need pieced together for me uh-huh. that I think I'm really going to enjoy this conversation because right. narratively I need some things pieced together. Oh, okay. There's a few question right. marks in here uh-huh. um, that – and I'm going to say that I, I think – I need them explained to me because it was good filmmaking, not because it was bad filmmaking, narratively, that uh-huh. element. Um, okay. Um, and I will go ahead and say there, there were things about this film that, um, that did bother me a little bit. Um, and there were things about this film that very much struck my, um, my attention. And, um, and we'll kind of explore all those, um, all those angles. I will say, first of all, that I, I'm sorry I gave you another film with cannibalism. <laughs> But you we say had this in- the first four films or the first three films I gave him, I gave Todd were all all had cannibalism in them. I very consciously made a decision to give him a fourth film that did not feature any cannibalism. But then this time back to the cannibalism. But in my defense, the film Todd gave me also had <laughs> cannibalism in it. So at this point, we're writing over fifty percent of all films between yes. the two of us with cannibalism in them. <laughs> what the hell does this say about us and the filmmakers we watch? Um, but yeah. So this film, there are a lot of other filmmakers that do grindhouse type uh, exploitation type films, but they're very much mired in that kind of 70s and 80s kitschy nostalgia trauma. This has a very modern uh, feel to it. It it has to do with contemporary issues, and it does not. It's not reaching back, and it doesn't. It doesn't have that faux uh, vintage grindhouse kind of sheen to it. it so you're feels, throwing out all the adjectives that I needed to discuss this that I didn't have. It but. feels it feels modern, uh, like a modern exploitation film rather than like a retro retro exploitation film. And also, this film is, from beginning to end, completely fucking insane. So I thought he would enjoy it. Uh, so, right. what'd you think? Modern exploitation film instead of a retro exploitation film, and the entire spill Colin gave you, perfect. Like, that clarifies so much to me. Because um, so, stylistically, watching this film, I immediately 
did understand the language, um, not because it was a horror film. In fact, I once again, if I'd watched this naively, I don't know if I would have registered it as a horror film. <laughs> um, but um, but once again, owning up to my own naivety, and um, that I saw this as a very edgy, um, um, very intentional indie film. Great little film festival indie feel to it. It seems like he took things from all kinds of genres. Um, definitely took things from horror film. Definitely took things from indie. There was a very stringent visual stylistic touch of 80s. What do you call that John Hughes style other than John Hughes? I think it's John Hughes. It's just John yeah, Hughes, just, but we're talking about that whole group of films. It's unto itself. Right, but most of them really were directed by John Hughes. Yeah. Um, but, but for instance, uh, framing the boy directly in the middle of the frame sitting on the basketball. Um, freaking uh, the... Oh my goodness, the minute they go into the classroom, um, following uh, into the girls' classroom, hot teacher walking down the middle of the aisle uh, with the camera panning through the desks. And I'm like, uh, I'm in a John Hughes film. This yeah, is awesome. Yeah. And um, I mean, times that I could have been watching Breakfast Club, that it hit that directly on some of those stylistic approaches. But with that being said, that by no means was the only thing going on. Like, there were so many different things stylistically going on in this film. I could make the point that there was too much going on. The very opening sequence was kind of a short film unto itself, which is giving you a the background and the context for the animalistic girl herself. And um, very dark, bleak, highly stylized, um, touching on a lot of um, production elements of art film. Um, some... Um, um, overlays and and slow dissolves um that um like almost gratuitous actually in the in the beginning over top of each other that is very very poetic um i tended to think that he used dissolves a little too heavy even though i know it was intentional i know he chose to mm-hmm. and i know it's a stylistic decision can you i'm sorry to interrupt you yeah. but can you describe this opening sequence because it's been a while since i watched this film there are things about it that i remember very very distinctly but this is not one of them so okay walk us through it yes i I, and actually the the opening shot and and rule of thumb from there's you know a few little things that i'm a real sucker for that really define a film and actually give me early cues on how good a film's going to be um the opening image opening shot is one of those things that a lot of times and this is kind of sad, but it kind of holds true. A lot of times you can tell from an opening image how good a film's going to be. Yeah, well, and it's like the first sentence of a novel. Exactly. Exactly. So it's not a universal. It can be forgiven when it's weak um, mm-hmm. and, and saved. Um, however, a lot of times you get a really nice idea in, in the first 30 seconds of a film, which you're, which you're in for. Mm-hmm. This one's very unique in that way. Um, I'll go ahead and straight up say the opening image was, was freaking brilliant, actually. <laughs> um, it opens into a static I'll give you a play-by-play on this one. Mm -hmm. Um, It opens into a static of a nature shot shooting straight down a rural, um, beautiful creek. But there's still kind of a looming eeriness to it because there's nothing in the frame but nature, the flowing creek straight down the middle, all the woods around it, um, which is the atmosphere the girl lives in. Um, And it is just simply a static of this nature shot. And then abruptly, the girl comes into frame left and in an extreme close-up of her torso. Um, and then the camera very fluidly switches from static to handheld, pulls out to show her entire body in a medium close-up, um, and then begins some pretty masterful editing at that point. Um, um, 
quick cuts of different images of her trekking through the creek, um, close-ups of her, and then following her into this cave-like um, silhouetted image that was also a brilliant image of her peeking through all of this um, overgrowth into this cave where you hear an animal sound. And then the scene is played out of her basically killing and feeding on the animal only through sound. They take you out of the image mm. and you go back outside the cave right. and just listen to it. And right, this film right. does this a few times to where you get the sound before the image and it's so potent and so well done. Yeah. Um, and that was the perfect example of it. So you have this whole opening sequence that once again could almost hold as a short film by itself. Um, at this point, I I have totally fooled into believing here is the aesthetic I am following in this film. <laughs> this is what this film is going to be. This dark, bleak woman in nature almost realist-esque. You get some touches of kind of the... I don't even want to use the word campy. That's not the right word. But you get some touches of that in that early sequence. But but not much. And um, you're, you're really kind of into an indie vierte kind of... Yeah, whatever. And so... And then I realized that the movie hasn't really started because we <laughs> fade to black. The woman, in kind of a sketchy font, comes into the uh. right corner, only the right corner of the screen... I just want to say that's one of the best title pages I've seen in a long freaking time. From that opening sequence to the title page, fade to black, and then you're into the movie. Now, when you get put back into the movie, it is a stylistic jolt that you go from this nature bleak um, world of the tribal woman or cannibal woman into an immediate John Hughes-esque bright, um, uh, I believe it's a, a swimming pool shot, um, panning up to the one uh, teenage girl, Belle, um, wearing pink and, and very uh, saturated colors. Would you go far as to say she looks pretty in pink? Oh, she does look pretty in pink. So pretty in pink. <laughs> How did I miss that? How did I miss it? Um, yeah, so I opened up to a really great opening sequence, um, a really great title page, and a very stylistically jolting um, transition into the film itself. Um, and then that's where the actual story begins. And, it, and you stay in that aesthetic tone. From, for the rest of the film, for the most part. It stays relatively consistent, not as heavy on the John Hughes stuff, but, but still relatively consistent from that point on. Uh, so the, the links to 80s uh, cinema that you brought up are really interesting, and it's not something that I had thought of. My point still stands from earlier, how it's not retro. Oh, yeah. It's not, it, doesn't, it doesn't try to be a Sam Raimi film. It's, it, it's sort of using elements of that John Hughes-style storytelling so the creators, um, Jack Ketchum, who is the co-writer of this film, um, is a an author who has been around since the 80s. I don't know if you did any research on him. He's written a lot of books, a lot of short stories. I've read – I went through a period where I read everything by him I could get my hands on. He's amazing at what he does. What he does can be a little limited, um, but, I mean, that can be said of, of pretty much any writer. What he does is extremely... I feel like we will have... By the time we get done recording this show, <laughs> between this film and the last film, we will have used the word visceral like <laughs> 90 times. Once again, we speaking on kind of the serendipitous nature of the films that we choose. Like, yeah. these two... We could just talk about the crossovers all day. Yeah, yeah. But yes, what Jack Ketchum does is extremely visceral, extremely mean-spirited, violent, um, bleak, splatter-filled storytelling. 
Um, most of his work is rooted in the real or the, the real world plausible, very disturbed individuals, killers, psychopaths, abusers, rapists, extremely troubled humans doing horrible, horrible things to other humans. His books are not they are engrossing. They're not fun to read. Um, I mean, he's been doing it for a long time, but he's really only gotten quote unquote mainstream attention in the last 10 years. Let's say there have been several films adapted from his work in the last uh, 10 years, probably the best of which is the girl next door, which was directed by Gregory Wilson. Uh, Lucky McKee, the director of this film, it first came to prominence with a film called May from 2002 starring Angela Bettis, who plays the mother in this, uh, in the woman. Um, that film is very different. It's almost like a Tim Burton-y fairy tale kind of whimsical, but also extremely dark at the same time. Quirky indie, uh, horror film about a girl who it's kind of a reworking of the Frankenstein um, mythology as well. Uh, she doesn't have any friends. So she builds one out of what end up being other people's body parts. He hasn't really made too many films uh, since then. He's produced a lot. Uh, he made a film called the woods in the mid two thousands, which I haven't seen. Uh, he, his most recent film is called all cheerleaders die, which is, uh, a horror comedy. Uh, it looks like I haven't seen that either. Uh, this, uh, the woman is the second time that he's collaborated with Jack Ketchum as a director. The first time he directed, uh, the adaptation of a book of Ketchum's called red, which, uh, has Brian Cox in it. Our favorite Brian Cox as the star gives a great performance um as an old man whose only friend is a dog that is uh, shot by some yuppie kids and he takes his revenge there's a lot of yuppie anti-yuppie sentiment going on in a lot of ketchum's work and you can definitely see that which colin and i certainly cannot relate to those sorts of uh, <laughs> feelings because we love all people equally <laughs> so the woman to my to the best of my knowledge, is the only film that Jack Ketchum has written that is not adapted from one of his novels. It was an original story that he and Lucky McKee uh, created together. And it is a semi-sequel to his first important book from the 80s, which is called Off Season, where he told the story of these this tribe of feral humans living out in the New England uh, woods. There's a lot to chew on there. I, I, I was very intrigued by the collaboration between Ketchum and, um, and McKee. The notion of, of it being um, a sequel to some degree, but not by Lucky McKee, and not a formal sequel, but um, that helps explain, because in this film, it's never necessarily specified that she's the member of a tribal clan. Um, like, none of that exposition's ever put in there. Thank goodness. So, right. Like, thank you, Lucky. Um, but um, I didn't need any of that. I had plenty. And the framework type stuff, the research I was doing ahead of time, everybody kept referencing the shock elements of this, the the gore elements. The, I felt like it was amazingly restrained. Mm -hmm. Like he chose his spots so well, 
you didn't get a, I could see somebody that really wanted the gratuitous gore would have been very disappointed in this film. Uh-huh. Like, I love the restraint. I love the pacing. I love getting it in a hard slap to the face yeah. and then pulling back out and me not knowing when it's coming again. And I felt like this film did it really well. Um, I felt like he chose his moments with amazing restraint. Well, this is one of those films that definitely shows you more by showing you less. Yes. It's breaking a lot of my um, very unfair assumptions on horror film genre. You know, say horror film, I'm like, oh, that's a, those Friday the 13th Halloween movies that I never watched. Uh-huh. You know? I mean, I love all of those films, too, and I love gore. Um, I'll watch a, you know, an early Peter Jackson film with just the fount, you know, the fountains of blood coming uh-huh. out of the zombies and stuff. But when it's really effective as a storytelling tool, mm-hmm. it's usually restrained. You'll seldom see gore used effectively in the service of storytelling when it's that over the top. Yeah. And actually paralleling within my skin, mm-hmm. I actually used the moments of violence with very similar pacing, very yeah. similar restraint, very similar, um, choreographed moments um and extremely well extremely well paced in both films i felt like and well restrained in both films production wise the one thing i can't get over is just the excessive dissolves like i really (laughs) had a hard time swallowing it and at first i was kind of like okay I, I actually wrote down in here somewhere along the way describing Lucky McKee. I was like, very film schooly. And oh. now, not, I don't mean that as an insult. I actually mean that as a compliment on some levels. Uh-huh. Um, but the one place I don't mean it as a compliment is the excessive use of dissolves. Um, now, once again, I'm sure he, in every way, decided this very intentionally. And if it had been gratuitous, it, I think it would have been effective. Uh-huh. The double gratuitous yeah. brought it into that, oh, my God, if I see one more freaking dissolve, I'm going <laughs> to lose my mind. All right. So let's, uh, let's, let's sort of get a little more into the meat of this film rather than sort of talking above it. Let's, yeah, you know, good Let's point. kind of get into good. it. So where I left off in, in the synopsis, as we – spoiler alert. Uh-huh. Um, so as we move on, that the culmination of, of, of the um, – douchebag patriarchal um, father figure um, versus the family becomes more and more tense. From the very beginning, even though you haven't seen why, his wife is such a sad character. Um, Very passive, very repressed, and you just feel it coming off of her, radiating off of her. She's obviously terrified of him. Completely. Like, has been literally scared into submission and then the son the father you can tell they have a different relationship than he has with his daughters and Mm -hmm. once again you feel it more than it's stated explicitly yeah and um and so as it as the film progresses so does the uh female um repression theme the daughters don't seem nearly as affected as the mother that she's a completed project (laughs) by mm-hmm. the damage the father's put on right, her. Right. The daughters are at the early stage that he kind of doesn't pay them much attention, so they still seem to be somewhat adjusted, well-adjusted children because of the mother, and the father's just a secondary thing, but the father takes very specific interest in the boy. What the girls say is does not hold the same weight as what the boy says. Mm-hmm. Um, and the boy gets a lot more forgiveness for things he does. So this is a very... I would say one of the central concepts that we need to talk about, theoretical concepts we need to talk about when you're discussing this film thematically, is the male gaze. For those of you who don't know, when we view things through the lens of art, almost all the time it is taken for granted that the default eyes we are looking through are male eyes. From the very beginning, the first time... (laughs) 
And this is something that really stuck with me. The first time we see the woman, it is through the scope of his rifle, right? Mm-hmm. It sure is. <laughs> Which not only is very apparent that it's a male gaze, but it's threatening a threat of violence. Um, and then <laughs> this as well as that perma smirk he has on yeah, his face. There's a ridiculous shot where he's watching her watching her bathe herself in this creek and all of a sudden it's in slow motion and there's this like sexy swaggery bluesy rock song (laughs) that comes on the fucking the soundtrack and it's basically like suddenly he's watching her as if he's watching a stripper yes we absolutely see her. It is very apparent that we're watching her, th- objectifying her through his eyes. And then the cued music. The music is what he's hearing in his head as he's watching her. So then he, he, he goes to prepare a place for her. He has them clear out this storm cellar and he chains her up. Essentially, she is spread eagled, mm-hmm. right? Uh, arms apart, legs apart, um, on display. Yes. She's there to be looked at. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a stage. She's there to be done with whatever as he pleases. And she has, he has some dogs that are being kept very much the same way in another shed across the way. She's pretty much being treated exactly as the dogs are in the other shed or structure. Yeah. Yeah. Dogs and... And, <laughs> and maybe something else. Uh-huh. Well, there's, there's there's what seems to be a third dog. You don't see it again until the very end of the film, or towards mm-hmm. the very end of the film. Yeah. Um, and it so doesn't you, turn out to be a dog. Right, right. So you have this setup to where the woman is, he's created this space where he can look at this woman. And he, as much lip service as he pays to civilizing her, really what he's doing is looking at her like most of what he does he washes her so she'll be clean and nicer to look at she is the subject of his male gaze from the very from the very beginning and then there's another male gaze that comes in which is that of the son who sees the way his father is interacting with this woman and he's pubescent Mm -hmm. he's like what 12 13 something like that right between prepubescent and pubescent yeah Yeah, he's right caught in that yeah weird spot he's been sort of spoon-fed through his father like obviously this is how you treat women he's seen the way his father treats his mom and he's seen the way his father treats his daughter and you're a man and you're a man and he's seen the way his father has treated this woman this is basically like his dad's ideal scenario for a woman chained up can't move on display I can do whatever I want and to. And what you have in return is a what seems to be a small little sociopath in development. Right. So the son ends up going out, and I believe he takes some pliers. This is a really tough scene. This is somewhere around halfway through the movie, maybe slightly over halfway through the movie. He comes out at night to see the girl. Right. Right before him, the father had already come out to see the girl. The wife knows he's left the bed to go see the girl, and then she's laying there kind of mortified, assuming what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um he rapes the girl, and um, and the son watches this through a peephole in the shed door, that downward-facing, um, like you know, hatch door, and um, through a hole that that yeah, that he can, has been gazing at the girl through anyway, and 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 observes the entire experience of his father raping this girl, mm-hmm. um, who who can't even speak, you know, um, and um, yeah, pretty pretty brutal and ugly, and so the next day 
the boy being left home alone for a spell. Um, well, I think the other daughter, the older daughter, is still at home. Goes down there with a pair of pliers, and and you're watching the whole thing. You see the pliers in his hands. He's going down there. You know what's going to happen. So it's like that tense discomfort, you know, expectation of what's coming. Thank goodness they only show him going in. And then show the after effects of what he's done to her physically. That he basically kind of tears her nipple up with with the pliers. He's he's snapping at it. He's he's yeah. tweaking or or whatever. And and so by the end she has blood dripping down and, and her nipple is is somewhat mutilated and her dress is pulled down and the older daughter comes in and catches him. Mm-hmm. She reports him to the mother. The mother's mortified. It's heavily implied, by the way, that he's masturbating while oh, he yes. does this. Right? Absolutely. And I, they actually say it. I oh, think directly oh, during his punishment or his oh. attempted punishment. Oh, okay. So. So afterwards, the mother is sitting there with the daughter who basically went and told the mother. They're all sitting there like, boys in big trouble. It's that moment. You know, mm-hmm. mama's coming down. We're just waiting on dad to get home. And then the shit's really going to hit the fan. Dad comes in. Mom is like, do you know what your son's done? Mortified, you know, that he's in there jacking off mm-hmm. and um, masturbating. And torturing. Me, and torturing this woman that they're already unbelievably uncomfortable with this situation, of course. Right. And, um, but they don't speak against the man, of course. And, um, so she's, you know, expecting the father to support her on this. He comes in and, and brushes it off. Says, says, Oh, he's, he's a young boy. This is, boys this will is, be boys. Boys will be boys. And, um, and actually sides completely with the boy over the two females, um, the daughter and the mother. Um, and then this is where the sh- shit's about to hit the fan. So now up to this point, there have been, there is one scene that is an, unforgettable scene you only have to see it once where the dad is brushing his teeth and the wife this it's pretty early on in the film he's brushing his teeth and the wife um is saying some she comes up to him and says i don't know if keeping this woman imprisoned in our storm cellar is such a great idea like maybe we should think through exactly what we're doing or something like that Mm -hmm. And without even breaking the stroke of his toothbrush on his teeth, the dad with his other hand casually, like he's done it a thousand times before and will do it a thousand times in the future, takes his other hand, hauls off and slaps her. So subtle and so amazingly choreographed. A really powerful scene, actually, because... Like Collins isn't even doing it justice because the words aren't there to do justice. How immediate and natural it just kind of yeah. seemed, and because you've never seen him get angry up to this point, mm-hmm. you've only seen that passive aggressive little smirk, right. and and him right. always actually seeming in a good mood, you know. <laughs> and um, that that when he turns around and slaps, it's the first time you've seen him be violent explicitly. So you know that there's rottenness there, and over the course of the film. The dad also, in conversation with the mom, makes some oblique references to something called anophthalmia. That was one of my questions. Right. Thank you. How, uh, what is that word again? Anophthalmia? Anophthalmia. Because he uses yeah. it a lot the closer to the end you get. Right, right, right. He says it a couple times before, and he just says it to the mom, and she knows what he's talking about. But, but you never, don't as the audience. You don't know. It's yeah. just it's, – it's almost like a code word that – he uses to remind her of what she should be ashamed of, I guess. Please, please explain. Cause I'm assuming this has something to do with the mystery yeah. dog person, right? Anophthalmia is the condition of being born without eyes. <gasps> it's a birth defect when you're born without <sighs> eyes. <laughs> yeah. All right. It makes sense now. Yes. So, but, but you don't know what that is yet. So you let that lie. 
also through the first half of the film increasingly like starting out extremely subtle and increasingly increasingly more apparent you you get hints that the older daughter is pregnant there's a long time that her teacher, the John Hughes scene teacher, uh-huh. um, thinks that she's pregnant. It's going to confront the right. um, family, all this. And you're not sure if the teacher's making a poor assumption. Right, if right, she's, right. You can't tell if, if the girl, the mm-hmm. teenage girl, his daughter, um, if her transition into the frumpy big clothes and the depressive nature. Because at the beginning of the movie, she's kind of a happy girl with lots of friends, uh-huh. dressed kind of sexy. Yeah. You know, like any teenage girl, basically. Yeah. And, um and so um, and there's a really great line by the teacher at some point talking with another person while she's smoking a cigarette under the bleachers to where she's like, she should be doing what other teen girls go do. La la. She should be wearing miniskirts and flaunting her stuff. And, la, and it's just such a beautiful, once again, touching on that, that, that yeah, female image um, and, and expectation and, and male gaze um, theme that's mm-hmm. laced throughout the film. Even this attractive female teacher who flaunts her stuff right, um, right. thinks, you know, oh, she's depressed and frumpy. Not because right, exactly, yeah. like the thing that's bothering is that, is that she's not out there flaunting her junk or yeah. her junk, her stuff? Yeah, yeah. And, um, it's just funny. It, it's, it's not that her grades are slipping or that her la la la. It's you know she be out there being sexy like other little girls. <laughs> right, right, right. It's, uh, it's that she doesn't have. She doesn't convey the image. Right. right? It's all about what she used to. She used to be one of those. She's so pretty and she's cute. She can be that sexy girl is what the teacher thinks, you know, like me. Yeah. um, So something, something must be really wrong in this family. Why? Because she's not dressing slutty. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. uh, No, it turns out I believe, and this is just my interpretation, but my understand best. My understanding of the film is that yes, the girl is pregnant and moreover, it's she's pregnant with her father's child. Right. So the results of all of this, this is when you, you know, you get the gestalt of this dad realizing that he is a serial abuser of women. Mm-hmm. He is a, and this is where that. It's almost like you're watching him come to terms yeah. and, and embrace it. I <laughs> yeah. want to say, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. no more, no more face, no more. <laughs> I'm charming little lawyer on the outside. You know what? Right. I'm a freaking asshole misogynist <laughs> abusive piece of crap and i love it and it's exactly <laughs> it's just like we we're talking about within my skin where the outcome of the film is where finally he has externalized what has been inside of him absolutely the, the metamorphosis this entire time the metamorphosis and yeah it's funny how both of these films deal with that progression from you know what Everything, everything will be all right as long as we portray this image that everything's fine. Like, as long as what's on the surface is that everything's fine. And the ultimate expression of that is when you finally find out what that thing living with the dogs is. Yes. Apparently they had another daughter. Yes. Who was born with anophthalmia, meaning she was born without eyes. Obviously, a dad who's so concerned with having a perfect, you know, picture postcard image of the family is not going to have 
a daughter with a birth defect. But he doesn't kill her. He doesn't ditch her in the woods, which he's more than capable of going in. Right. It's within his character to do so. Right. He keeps her in the dog pen and literally treats her exactly like a dog. He debases and dehumanizes. He takes away her humanity. She's not a human anymore. When which you is see her. which is the exact reverse. Which you realize how full of shit he was with the woman. It's the exact reverse of what right. he says he was going to do with the woman. He's going to you know civilize yep. her and give her her humanity. Where with with his daughter that had the misfortune of being born with a birth defect, he does the exact opposite. He turned his daughter into an animal and. Yet his pitch is that he's going to turn an animal into a human. Right. So to tally up the score, and obviously this is not a realistic character. This guy is the representative of male oppression of women. He has... A, a feral woman that he's pretty much keeping on display and as his own personal whatever, like toy, basically. He has a wife whom he has completely broken of her will. Mm-hmm. He has a daughter that he has knocked up. And he has another daughter that he has turned into a beast. Um, and meanwhile, his son... He's recreating in his own image. Oh, and his 100%. son gets away with everything and has completely free right. reign to do whatever well, the fuck he wants. The difference being that the son has never had to fit. Well, in the real world he has, but around his father, he doesn't actually have to restrain himself. So he actually doesn't have the same discipline the father did as far as keeping a face out front versus right. what's inside. Right. The son's kind of like you kind of figure the son's going to be put away for life at age 15. You yeah. know, something's going to yeah. happen. Or he's going to get caught. He ain't yeah. going to pull it off as long as dad did. Yeah. You know. Um, well, so this film, and he certainly doesn't. Right. right. So this <laughs> film very much shows you in heavy, extremely heavy-handed allegorical terms the yeah. way that patriarchy perpetuates itself and is transmitted um, down through the generations. And it takes a woman from outside of the patriarchy, from outside of this fucking rotten-to-the-core, sanitized you know, uh, to cover over all of our bullshit society, a woman from the Dionysian to our supposed Apollonian society to come in and disrupt this because the more, mom is not going to do right. it. And even more, uh, a woman who is primitive, uneducated, mm-hmm. only sees things on instinctive value. Right. You know, right, right. and um, it's, it's all what she perceives and, and picks up on. She's learning on the spot and the good and bad, right. you know, right and wrong justice, right. you know, like she's seeing things kind of clearly like, you know, mm-hmm. the mom is not going to do it. And the mom ends up, I mean, obviously we've spoiled the shit out of this already. The mom ends up dying where she cannot hang because she has been essentially been enabling the husband. Right. I'm literally biting at the bit to jump in. Sorry. She's been <laughs> enabling the dad and there's yeah. this element of, Oh, our women, like the civilized woman who has bought into the patriarchy is the liberated woman's worst enemy. Right. I kind of made the assumption that revenge and justice would include sparing the mother's life, sparing the daughter's lives, mm-hmm. um, and possibly even the son until he had done that one action. And then I'm kind of like, okay, his life's not getting spared. Right. Um, but by horror film, you know, um, kind of formula, even, you know, the good ones live, the bad ones die sometimes, uh-huh. you know? And, um, but then you realize very quickly because as, as I'm watching the film, I have enormous empathy with the mother. I feel right. horrible for her. I want right. to take her away. She makes her attempts to stand up. She tries. Um, but then you get such a jolt of the other perspective that, that I, 
really kind of loved that he did this. So when it comes to be revenge time, everything's hitting the fan at one time. Right. And, and you feel the tension and the pace is picking up. And I, yeah. And for me last, at this point, I'm like, all right, let's yeah. go. Let's go. I think let's the go. last, you know, what, like 15, 20 minutes of this movie are just complete and utter insanity. Absolutely. Right? You have the feral woman chained up. And so the daughter who is pregnant by her father, who is kind of um, the one woman holding on to possible individual empowerment within the family unit uh-huh. or has the chance of claiming um, empowerment um, that um, she goes down. And while all the shit's hitting the fan, she doesn't know what else to do. Runs down to the weather shelter and unties the girl, basically uh-huh. the feral girl. So my mind at this point is assuming, you know, feeble, knocked out mother that I have enormous empathy for, who's given this amazing performance throughout the film, um, is going to be saved. The first person taken down by the feral girl (laughs) is the mother Uh with a big old cannibalistic chop to the neck, I believe, Uh and ripping out whatever with her teeth. And she has no empathy for the mother more than she does the father. It's basically like you're both perpetuating this thing that I've been watching here while chained up and screw you both equally. You're just as representative of this evil as he is to me yeah and it's in such, her eyes in her eyes and it's really a powerful statement i think because you have bold as well right yeah yeah, yeah. powerful and bold you you have you've done your part in perpetuating this right. you're not off the hook because you are a woman right and, and by the way calling to speak for himself i'm not expressing a personal opinion here uh, we're, we're speaking yeah. on what the filmmaker <laughs> expressed right. and our intrigue and how successfully he expressed it right. that this is right. one take on this situation yeah um obviously there's a lot of gray zones i think we're coming to the point where i can give my overall um sort of culminating thoughts on this mm-hmm. film it's created written and directed by men mm-hmm. um Therefore, it has limited integrity as a feminist piece. Um, It has feminist ideas into it. And I'm sure that a real scholar uh, of feminist theory, somebody who really understands feminist theory, could pick it apart and and pick a whole – a ton of holes in it. Um, I appreciate it for what it says about about society, and I also, I think more than that, appreciate it on the level of story. I think the fact that it's so heavy-handed with its allegory, not allegory, so heavy-handed with its moralizing, mm-hmm. and the fact that it's made by men keep me from really, really getting on board with it. But I think yeah. as a as a viewing experience and as a transgressive you know, horror film viewing experience. I think it's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of figured, um, <laughs> this, this film deserves contemplation and, and, and commentary as much as anything we've seen, honestly. Um, males may be very valid in having feminist perspectives and expressing them. Um, it's not the same, but it may be very valid. Mm-hmm. Just want to throw that out there. Fair enough. Just don't confuse it for full understanding. Right. <laughs> you know, fair and, enough. Um, but um, with that being said, um, God, those dissolves <laughs> Back to and the, the slow-mo, oh, they hurt so badly. But thank goodness everything else was so damn good. <laughs> of course, it gets a highbrow. Are you kidding Hooray! me? Um, great little indie film that almost fooled me into believing it was a horror film. Uh, <laughs> wow. It's a horror film. I'm kidding. I chose to see it through the eyes. I chose to see it through. Sweet. But um, damn good film, man. Um, this one was probably the most natural 
um, like I said, I just felt like I was at a film festival circling a film and coming out of it saying, damn, that was the good film of the day. Awesome. Enjoyed the hell out of it. The woman gets a high <laughs> brow. High brow. High brow. Salt. the dog shit. Are things at school, kiddo? What kind of cookie do you want? I want a little man. Did you catch anything? You'll see. This is our project, and it's a secret. What are we gonna do with her? We're gonna help her. We're gonna train her, civilize her, free her from herself, from her baser instincts. We're looking forward to next time. Oh yeah, what do we have for next time? I am taking Todd to a decade we have not visited, as well as a continent we have not yet visited. I am having Todd watch Herman Yao's 1996 The Ebola Syndrome. Ooh. Hong Kong film. Awesome. Um, and I am going to throw Stan Brackage at Colin. Stan Brackage is the godfather of experimental cinema in the United States. Um, he does not make feature length films. So we are taking ourselves to the very fringes of cinema this time. We are going to give you. Dog Star Man, early Stan Brackage. Um, we are also going to give we're going to give you a handful of shorts, basically, and they all come on one DVD together that we can access. Oh wow! Um, okay. And so, Dog Star Man, Window Water Baby Movie, and then I would love you to pick one of the very short ones that will also be on the DVD that is pure visuals, and um, and I'll help guide you through that. And then you're going to comment on Stan Brackage's. Uh, basic approach in some way all right so uh for next time you can look forward to hong kong horror in the bola syndrome and the godfather of american experimental stan brackage indeed all right but until then uh i'm todd keep it artsy (laughs) and i'm cullen and you (laughs) damn well better keep it crass and (laughs) ophthalmia Okay, good people. As always, we would love to hear from you. Uh, the email is artscrasspodcast at gmail.com, or you can hit us up on our Facebook page. There is another podcast called Arts and Crass. We are not affiliated with them. They do comedy. We talk about movies. Uh, They had the name first. We did not copy them. We came up with the name on our own, and we liked it too much not to use it. Sorry. Sorry.